on today's episode. Most cancers are simply detected too late. So early detection can increase cancer survival rates very substantially, you know, depending on the, the cancer type and the data you're looking at, perhaps up to three times to 12 times of an increase in, in survival rates, depending on when cancer is first detected. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott-Gall. Today, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, global research analysts, Tommy Sternberg and Ben Loss, to discuss edit genetics in the first installment of our Convergence series, which examines five growth themes that are shaping the future of investing. This episode will address solving known problems and constraints with existing technology and explore new technology in healthcare, food, and biomaterials. So Tommy and Ben, welcome. Thanks for being here. And uh, let's get started. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Let's do it. Right, let's do it, Tommy. Your voice is last, so I'm going to pick on you first. In the work that we did around where to find growth, thinking about exactly the shape and profile of growth in, across a number of industries, you spent quite a lot of time talking about the role of genetics in health and well-being. So could you talk about that and talk about gene therapy? Because I count myself amongst probably the majority who don't really know a lot about gene therapy. What is it? Why is it important? And why is it one of your growth areas? Yeah, absolutely, Hugo. So when we took a look at, at the overall healthcare sector and some interesting growth areas for us to be further investigating into where great companies are, are going to be driving lots of growth. Yeah, absolutely. Genetics and our understanding of it really is driving multiple themes. And the area of, of gene therapy specifically was a very interesting market for us. Now, for those avid listeners of the Active Share podcast, you may recall that we spoke quite a bit about gene therapies back in a, a previous episode that that we did. Is it science or science fiction? You know, so back then we introduced a number of what I've been referring to as new medicine modalities. So completely novel types of, of medicines that are making tremendous medical breakthroughs. And we specifically introduced not only gene therapy, but also uh, related modalities of cell therapy and, and gene editing. So I won't rehash all of those here, but we did want to specifically call out gene therapy on its own as this market is developing rather quickly, and there have been some significant developments since we had first introduced uh, the topic, both on the medical development front as well as the corporate front in terms of uh, IPOs, M&A, license agreements. So there's a lot of uh, dollars changing hands here, a lot of investment in this area. So, But maybe I should step back now and just kind of briefly introduce or explain exactly what, what I mean when I say gene therapy. So a gene therapy approach modifies existing genes or introduces new genes into a patient's body, potentially leading to cures for genetic conditions. So a common gene therapy approach would involve replacing a mutated gene that causes a disease with a corrected version or functional copy of that gene. And just to reemphasize, you know, what's fascinating here is this approach is potentially curative because it addresses the underlying cause of a particular disease that is caused by a specific genetic defect. So you're not just treating the symptoms here. So gene therapies, for instance, are being investigated in, in genetic disorders such as sickle cell disease, hemophilia, muscular, muscular dystrophy, and various eye disease, 
and even uh, congenital deafness. So it, it's a big opportunity, and we can uh, delve into uh, that a little bit more, Hugo, in terms of um, the numbers and how we're thinking about it from an investing standpoint as well. Where do you think then that the growth could kind of really surprise? Because it, it seems like you know we talk about TAMs, total addressable markets, and it seems the addressable markets here could be pretty big given some of the conditions and diseases that you highlighted there. What, what's where can the surprise come? Why can't it come sooner? And what, what are the things that are in the way? Yeah, sure. So let's spell out the TAM a little bit, and, and then we can talk to where perhaps some of the surprises may come from. So in this exercise where we kind of looked across the sector for, for big and growing markets with big addressable that are have big TAMs, as you said, TAM here is is potentially as big as $4 trillion, which is almost unheard of and hard to really wrap your head around that. And how much, you know, can they truly capture? We'll see. But first of all, how do we even arrive at, at, at that number? So there are about 40 million people across the U.S. and Europe alone that have a rare genetic disease. And while that patient number alone is not as large as what you would see in other more common diseases, such as cancer or cardiovascular disease, but because these rare disease treatments come with very high price points, in some cases well north of $1 million. Of course, it's incredibly high, but can actually be justified from a pharmacoeconomic standpoint because of the, the value that is being brought for these patients due to the severity of this disease, of these various diseases and what it could mean for, for their lives. And of course, the ultimate bill that's being paid, uh, even when you sum up um, this at the moment, is not nearly as large as some of those other uh, disease areas that I mentioned. But when you do the math on that, and let's just say you use a $100,000 price point on 40 million people, that's that's an incredible addressable market that, that we got to. So that's one of the reasons why you know we wanted to highlight this. But also, there's a lot of momentum in this area. So there are you know, still only two recently approved gene therapies on the market. And this was the same as when we discussed this you know, over a year ago. But the momentum, you know, continues to skyrocket. At the beginning of the year, there are over 900 ongoing gene therapy trials in the U.S., and so we're, you know, likely to be well north of a thousand today. And again, thinking of that baseline of just two approved therapies out there. Now, you asked about surprises. There are both surprises, you know, both positive and negative. So we need to be mindful of the risks here. And in recent months, there have also been, you know, some high-profile discontinuations of some clinical trials, including, you know, patients patients dying. So the development path here uh, for gene therapy as a whole is not linear, and that's to be expected. But certainly the promise is there, and there's plenty of um, investment and momentum uh, behind this opportunity. And then, I guess, one perhaps less obvious you know, insight is it's not just the biotech companies themselves that stand to uh, profit from all the development in this area, but, you know, other business models that we like are sort of those partners that work with the drug developers to help them with various services in terms of research, development, and manufacturing. manufacturing. So these are really important enablers of growth in this fast-growing industry. So I think, you know, just we had some surprises that we were kind of starting to uncover this area. For instance, just how expensive and how much, you know, manufacturing space is needed to come up with these, the raw material, the viral vectors, 
which is the raw material for these gene therapies, you start to get to, to pretty high numbers. So that's been one surprise to us that is leading to some um, investment insights for us as well. Great, thanks. So I guess one other area we'd like to cover, I'd like to ask you about is liquid biopsy, which you've said is a, again, is a, is a, a growth area. So could you talk about what exactly it is and why you see it as a growth area and really how much can it grow? Absolutely. So the area of liquid biopsy is another really burgeoning growth market. There's lots of investment in this area from big companies, small companies, public, private. And just to explain a little bit of, of, of what it is, and then we can speak to you know, with the type of growth opportunity that, that we're seeing here more broadly. But the value proposition here in terms of the, the problem that that's trying to be solved is readily apparent. So most cancers are simply detected too late. So early detection can increase sur- cancer su- survival rates very substantially, you know, depending on the, the cancer type and the data you're looking at, perhaps you know, up to three times to 12 times of an increase in, in survival rates, depending on when cancer is first detected. However, you know, for an otherwise healthy patient, it's not going to be practical. It's not going to be cost effective or even really justified, you know, medically necessarily to perform a, a, a tissue-based biopsy, you know, on various organ, organs if there's no medical reason to, to do so. But that's why, you know, imaging screening such as mammograms and, and other procedures like colonoscopies, I mean, these have had massive impacts on, on cancer detections if you, you know, go back decades, but there's still so much more that can be done. And that's really the promise of the simple blood-based test that could detect whether you might have uh, an early stage cancer and the medical as well as societal value of such a test would be enormous. And, you know, would understand if there might be a bit of of skepticism here, particularly if anyone who's familiar with the Theranos story, if you've you know, read the book Bad Blood, or if you've seen seen the movie that that profiled Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, right? Great promise of of you know, kind of curing everything with just um, you know a, a prick of your finger. But there's a reason to be somewhat skeptical of this. But in fact, I think what might surprise many people is we're actually closer than most people think for this to actually become a reality. So just for a little bit of history here. So the first liquid biopsy test was was approved in 2016, and it was able to detect a specific type of mutation in a tumor, which is important because not all types of cancers, even if it's in the same organ, are the same. So when a specific type of mutation can be identified, then one type of drug might be more effective in treating that cancer, as, as many cancer therapies are actually developed uh, to target some of these mutations. So while this type of test was readily available as a tissue-based diagnostic, using a blood-based test has some advantages. Uh, for instance, in cases where the tissue is, is difficult to be biopsied, it's also easier to repeat the test if necessary. So just stepping back, what is the value here then of, of having this blood-based or liquid biopsy available? Well, there's three primary applications here. The first is therapy selection. So that's uh, the example I just kind of walked through. Uh, another application is recurrence monitoring. So that that's actually a pretty big deal. It's way easier to monitor recurrence for existing patients who have maybe already received treatment um, to be able to do that with a blood-based test compared to a, a tissue biopsy. Then you get you know more of a real-time, more of a, a longitudinal view of of uh, where the cancer is at and whether it's it's is recurring. 
And then, of course, the biggest potential application is, of course, early detection or, or screening, which I, which I mentioned at the outset. So, it, Hugo, you asked about the growth opportunity of kind of walk through, you know, what it means here. So we've sized the, the liquid biopsy market today at around $600 million. It's certainly south of, of a billion, but the total addressable market we sized at, at $50 billion. So, and, and Actually, since then, we've seen subsequent estimates because there have been some recent activity in the space, valuing it up to $75 billion by, by 2035. Uh, but either way, you know, you're looking at a market that's, that's maybe 1% penetrated, and it's already growing pretty fast. We see sort of the, the five-year CAGR around 40% or so, and that's without having tapped into the largest segment, which is that early detection. And you know, again, early detection going to be make up the vast majority of that 75 or 50 billion market opportunity several years down the road. And one final point here is that while we don't have an approved test for early screening, again, very close here. One of the largest companies in the space uh, is expected to have a test available in the market as soon as next year in 2021. So liquid biopsy, a really exciting space, lots of excitement, a lot of action lots of opportunity. Great, thanks. Well, that, that's a very obvious solution to an important problem. So when problems are solved, Ben, I want to bring you in because I guess one of the growth areas you highlighted, and I guess this is a recurring growth area, but the growth in the world's population means that we need to produce more food without increasing costs. So could you talk about why right now that's a particularly interesting growth area and what are the solutions that you think are, are making it so attractive? Yeah, sure, Hugo. I think probably to, to start off, just a little bit of historical context can kind of give people a, a window into, into how we got to where we are today and, and how that informs the needs of tomorrow. So we still have an increasing population. You see some of the developed part of the developed world not increasing as much but you still have strong growth in emerging countries. And so while population growth might not be as strong as it historically has been, it's still present. But even if we were to relax that assumption, there are still very strong growth opportunities. So starting from, the, the, from about the 1800s, we've added about 7 billion people to the planet, two-thirds of which has come since 1950. So this is quite explosive growth relative to the trajectory that we were on. And over that time period, we've actually seen land use for agriculture decrease. The U.S. is down roughly 12 percentage points over the last 50 years. So you, you look at those two things, you say, well, how do you reconcile this? And you reconcile it by the fact that we've seen on a cumulative basis since the 1950s, a 70 percent increase in farm productivity. That's essentially if you were to go back to the 1950s, you can draw a 45 degree line and that's, that's the increase that you would see in yields. And looking back from that, you would see very, very little improvement. So we had this, this very strong increase that came with some costs that we're learning more about each day. So we added fertilizers, we added a whole series of agricultural chemicals, and then we learned better farming methods, better irrigation, et cetera. But now we're seeing that that had some cost, both on the human health side as well as the environmental side. So now we're looking to, to reformulate and rectify some of those problems, but at the same time, we need to ensure that, that we're going to have 
healthy and, and sustainable food for a global population. And then as we look forward, the incremental growth, given the base effect from a larger population, we're probably going to need to see a 30% increase in farm productivity over the next several decades. So very strong, very strong demand for the industry. And so this has kind of created what I'm talking about as a sort of dual mandate. So it's continue to increase productivity, but in a healthier way for the people and the, and the planet. And then running in conjunction with this is the fact that nature isn't standing still. So we've seen bugs, fungi, et cetera, have developed resistances to a lot of these products that have enabled this explosive growth in yield. And so even if we were to put aside these, these other concerns, we are seeing natural resistance develop, and we're, we're going to need to combat that somehow. And you can look at, at Roundup or glyphosate, as it's known, which is a, a pretty common example that, that people see as sort of one area where, where crops are starting to develop significant uh, resistance to. So this mandate creates a lot of opportunities that we see. And so this is across a $5 trillion global market. I know Tommy talked about $4 trillion. This is, this is a little bit bigger. And so when you look across the, these opportunities, this is a very prominent theme that, that we see across the sector. So one area is, is these biologic alternatives. And this, this can be either a, a full-on replacement of chemicals, or it can be a supplement to something that, that's already in place. And the, the predominant way that this has manifested itself in the market is through coatings on seeds. And these can do a whole host of things to protecting the crop from insects or disease, requiring less chemicals, or it can do things like enhancing nutrient uptake, which is going to require less need for fertilizers. And that, that's going to result in, in better yields and, and ultimately a healthier planet because those fertilizers generate a lot of emissions in their production process. So very strong growth there. And this is also can be harvested across the, the animal market. So the, the protein chain where we're using a lot of these biologic alternatives along with the combating antibiotic resistance, which is similar to the crop resistance we talked about, but just optimizing the gut health of animals to, to make the, the yield conversion from feed to protein optimal. So there's a lot of challenges here. There's a lot of solutions that are coming, but this is still very, uh, very much in, in the early days. And again, what, what are the things that need to be solved? What are, what are the impediments to make us move from early days to some kind of genuine penetration? Yeah, so there is just the sort of nature of the industry. So we, we generally have one growing season a year outside of a couple of select markets. And, and farmers are, by nature, a, a conservative group of people. So it takes time to really convince them of new solutions. But we, we are seeing that come into the market. If you look across the, the biologic segments of a, of a number of companies, they're reporting growth between 20 and 50 percent, most of them. So it is happening. But this is you know, coming off of, of a small base. If you look at certain, certain markets, every acre of some crops does have a biologic product of some sort, but now that that we're seeing more of this um, crop resistance as well as as legislation coming forward, as we learn more about the harmful effects of of a number of these chemicals, that's going to really cause a an inflection point. And so companies that that are are well positioned with with products in these areas are should should do quite well. The other thing, and this sort of connects with with why these are 
attractive businesses is it it's not enough to just know that that there is a a microbe or the byproduct of the microbe the enzyme that that is useful but it's very hard to produce consistent scalable quantities of this and so that's part of the the challenge here is is it's not just like uh fermenting uh your, your favorite beer there, there's a lot that goes in, involved with this as well as making sure that the microbes stay alive to get to where they need to get to and that they're still in sufficient quantities and they can survive transport and, and various other environmental impacts. So, so there's a lot around that that um, continues to need to, to improve to, to really be able to produce the quantities of this that, that we're going to need across the farm complex. Great. So thinking, I mean, related to this demand for more food, can you talk a bit about synthetic protein and how you think the market for protein will change in terms of organic versus synthetic and, and and again what are the what are the barriers what is stopping synthetic protein becoming a much bigger part of that mix yeah so i i think consumer taste do, does play a role in this but you know when we look at the challenges of of growing meat you know there, there there's a lot of scientific breakthrough breakthroughs that still have yet to occur there it's it's quite tricky to replicate the sort of bone and, and other structure that, that we see within an organism and exporting that outside and growing the muscle tissue around it. I think we, we have a sense of, of how the, the, the muscle component of it works, but, but it's, it's, that, it's that other part that, that seems to be holding us back. And then obviously these, these are still going to require resources to grow and figuring out how to, to properly source that either if it's from the you know natural pro- process of a cow out on pasture versus you know importing that into the lab that there's there's just a lot of technical challenges to overcome but one area and this t- ties into to some of what Tommy was talking about is biologics as it relates to to seeds and this crispr technology I'll I'll spare you the what the acronym actually means because I I oftentimes forget it myself but basically what what we're seeing here is is the ability to take what we've been doing for generations, which is naturally selecting for, for the traits that we, that we see as desirable. You know, if you look back several thousands of years ago, you know, the strawberry that, that we would see back then or, or the stalk of corn we would see back then would be unrecognizable. You know, this has all been done by generations of us selecting for, for traits that are optimal for, for what we're trying to achieve. And so CRISPR is basically a way of just speeding up that process, taking, you know, thousands, millions of years and condensing it down into a very short period. So this is another very interesting way of getting about this, this problem. Um, and it does, it, it, in many ways, it's, it's talking more about silencing and the removal of genes from the existing organism rather than inserting new ones in, which is what much of the, the GMO debate uh, has been about. Great. Thanks, Ben. So I'm going to ask both of you the moonshot question. By that, I mean, what are the high impact but currently low probability things that could happen in your respective industries? So, Tommy, you, you go first. G- give me something kind of wacky. Give me, give me some, something that right now feels unlikely and kind of a bit out there, but just could, just might happen. Yeah. I mean, one area that I'm kind of interested in that's not super close or high on, on our radar screen, but could perhaps accelerate as a potentially 
in terms of the innovation and maybe even investment uh, from an investment standpoint as well is, is longevity and you know the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, combined with the raw power of genome sequencing, you know, the, as the cost and has has come down substantially, the speed has gone up. The advent and the use of of CRISPR te- and, and other gene editing technologies that that Ben mentioned, and you know, a- applying all these things and other interesting sort of discoveries around, you know, certain cells that that don't necessarily die as quickly as others, and looking into those to to slow down the aging process, I, I think is a fascinating area of research that we're, we're still in early days, but, you know, who knows at, at some point in, in the coming years when, you know, we, we may see breakthroughs in that area. So I, I think that's a, an interesting area as sort of a moonshot to, to pay attention to. Ben, can you match that? He's not only going to match it, he's, he's going to one up me, I'm sure, you know, just based on the, uh, I throw out a $4 trillion TAM, Ben throws out a $5 <laughs> trillion TAM, you know, don't, don't think that didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was I was waiting for that response. Um, so I I think there's um, three moonshots that that are 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 sort of worthy of of there inclusion. Go, they, they, it didn't take long. It didn't take long. You know, just right away, boom, three to three so, you <laughs> Next time it'll be nine. So the, the first one I I would say is vertical farming. So I, I think this is going to be a nice sort of buffer or just kind of complement to all of the biologic revolution, use of CRISPR, you know, better seeds, et cetera, that can kind of ensure that 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 we don't have any sort of food shortages. So when you think about, about vertical farming, what would the advantages be? It'd be controlled environment, be close to the demand centers, and it would allow for continuous production because obviously it's indoors and you don't have to worry about seasons. This is also interesting from, from a, a big data uh, sensors, advanced materials. There's going to be a lot of, of neat innovations that that need to happen there. It's not like it's it's going to overwhelm traditional agriculture. It's it's likely going to be limited to certain crops, mostly things like lettuce and, and similar crops. But you know that's certainly an area to watch. The the so you could say, well, why aren't we doing more of it now? Because uh, it costs a lot of money to to replicate the sun, which is free when you're outside. So. As renewable energy costs come down, those vertical farms become closer and closer to in the money. So I think that's that's something to to watch. And then another piece would just be we're seeing this in across a number of industries, but robotics. And so obviously, as I talked about before, nature plays this game where it's fighting back against the things that we try to do. This will be true on the biologic side as it has been in the synthetic side, but it's going to be quite hard for weeds to um, evolve a way to get around a metal spear or fork that's walking through the rows and spearing them and, and taking them out of commission. So there, there's, you can find some some fun videos online about various robots and sort of working through that. And so there's going to need to be a lot of innovation for, for those camera modules, et cetera, to, to be able to recognize weeds and other harmful things versus the crop. But that, that's one way to um, sort of get us back to organic farming, but without a lot of the cost. And then the the third piece I would say is, you know, we talked a lot about, about microbes and their use on, on animal and plant, but then their their potential on, on the human side. So thinking about this as bugs as drugs kind of thing, you know, this could be a sort of next frontier in, in medicine where 
you know, we finished the human genome and now we're thinking about the human micro microbiome, which is, is essentially all the bacteria that, that live inside us for mutual benefit, sort of evolving and thinking about human beings as, as a system. So, you know, we've already seen good evidence of certain, um, certain microbes and their ability to basically alleviate peanut allergies, but there's a lot of promising data um, across a whole host of things, including cancer. So I think that's, that's something that's certainly an emerging trend where you're seeing a lot of um, R&D dollars go, go into therapies across this area. So, so there's my, my three moonshots. Thank you for that. I must admit, when I was growing up, I, I used to think farmers were farmers. Little did I know they were horizontal farmers. But uh, <laughs> thank you both very much for sharing just a few of your insights around where to find growth, really interesting stuff, funky stuff. I think Ben wins on the moonshots. But with that, I'm going to say thank you to you both and thank you for listening. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Europe. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.